I'm talking to uh, Jennifer Fisk today, and Jennifer and I have talked on many occasions about mental health starting about, I don't know, five, six years ago when we met working on a mental health fundraiser. And it's always great to talk to you, Jennifer, because you have lots of insights, and I just love chatting with you. How are you? How are you right now? Today, just this very moment. <laughs> This very much, to be honest, it's a tough day. It's been it's been a tough few months. And usually when you and I chat, it's it's pretty positive, but we're kind of in one of those, as anybody with mental illness knows. It has its ups, it has its downs. And right now we're kind of we're not in the valley of the down, but we're definitely not at the peak of the mountain of GL either. So it's interesting because um your what you deal with is a really high level of anxiety. And uh, sort of mix in that some obsessive compulsive disorder. And we know those yep. two things go hand in hand. Somebody with severe anxiety can often use OCD as a way of controlling their their world. Yes. And, yes. and that's how we first started talking because um, I didn't know a lot about really severe anxiety five or six years ago because it's not something that's part of my life. When when we talked the first time, it was sort of the first time that you would come out and publicly, I think in private, people people knew what you struggled with, but yeah. you hadn't talked to it about it publicly. And part of that was was stigma. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um to be honest, and, and after we talked the first time, I will admit part of it was you've made it so comfortable to talk, right? And that's part of it is providing the environment where people want to talk. People feel hurt. People don't feel like they're going to be judged. Um, so, yeah, for the last few years, I had been pretty open about it and speaking about it pretty openly. And, uh, you know, I've talked about at that time I was working with an employer that they were fully aware and it was great. And um, I'm not going to lie. I had sort of thought, hey, I've got this stigma down fixed. I'm not worried about it anymore. And uh, this year, earlier this year, I took on uh, late last year, I took on kind of a dream job for me. But it was uh, it's with a new group of people. And all of a sudden I had that fear of stigma again. What will people think of me? What will my, you know, what will my no co-workers think of me? You you get into this place of comfort. And so I think I thought I had slayed this the stigma beast, at least personally, and I was going to be open. And it turns out it's a bit more like riding a horse where you fall off and you have to get back on. It's not a flat, you know, horse going forward. And so I think that's part of where my challenge has been is, you know. I'm right back to do what do I share? What level do I share? How will people judge me when I share? And I think um, I'm not as convinced maybe now as I was before that the stigma, it's definitely diminishing. There's no question about that. But the pace at which it's diminishing and whether we, we really maybe just plateaued uh, is a question I'm really starting to answer a little bit uh, for myself and hope to feel answers soon because it's, um, you know, I think part of it is you hear employers a lot or the public, and, and we heard this during COVID, right? You need to find work-life balance. You need to find work-life balance. And then those same people would say, would be the ones who would email you at 11 o'clock at night. So you're like, okay, there's a disconnect between the message. So now when you're hearing that same mental, mental wellness is important, you know, don't worry about stigma. Are we back in that kind of situation where they're saying it, but they don't necessarily mean it. So that's, that's really a challenge for me right now. And, um, and it really kind of came to a head right before Christmas in my new office. So I work in Toronto a lot. Uh, and my new office after work one night was kind of going down um, 
to the waterfront to celebrate Christmas. We were going to do a Christmas thing and, and everybody's like, oh, well, we're going to, you're just going to hop on transit and go. And, and, uh, you know, you and I've talked before, transit oh, I... is one of those things that just, it's actually, it actually life. jumped right into my mind. I thought, wow, that whole, I was going to say to you, did you have to start out six hours early to get from downtown to the waterfront? Because that was one of the things that you, you face. Yeah. Well, and I went, Hey, I went even further than that. I actually obsessed about it for three weeks. How am I going to handle this? What are my ways to get around this? Can I drive down and park the car and just say it so that I can leave easier afterwards? Like, what are my outs here? Uh, and ironically, of course, I work in an organization where transit is one of our focuses. So how do I say to my coworkers, I'm deathly afraid of transit that you all get on every day as part of your normal course of business. And I'm um, I'm not ashamed to say that I was never happier to have a snowstorm in my life because I didn't end up having to go into to work that day. So I didn't have to address the issue. But it really brought home for me, I'm going to have to talk to somebody in my office about it. But who and when and and how much do I tell them about this? So it really made me helped me to appreciate again people who were feeling stigma. Uh, I think maybe I was starting to take for granted it was really easy, and and this is definitely where it brought me right back to oh wait no no that's not as easy as you may have thought it is. Very humbling, I will say, very humbling for sure. Well, in our kind of going back and forth in text, one of the well the the last thing you said, which was mind blowing for me and got me thinking about myself was that stigma isn't something you conquer or stop fearing once and for all. It's the beast that sometimes surprises you. When we talked last, we were talking about uh, uh, COVID kind of ending and we're, we're going back into the workplace. And we both talked about how hard it was to all of a sudden find ourselves back in the world, even though we didn't realize that staying at home had become so comfortable. But that wasn't just us. I talked to a lot of people who were struggling in that way. My question is, with with regarding the pandemic, is that mental health became such a big topic because virtually everybody was struggling in some way. Yeah. Um, anxiety was huge. Anxiety for parents who had their their kids at home. We all thought we'd like to work remotely. It didn't turn out that way because in a way there was more stress yeah. because of with, with kids and getting kids places, worrying about the fact that your kids weren't at school and, and what you were going to do with them. And my, my worry in, during that time was that when we came out of it, would there still be this heightened awareness of the needs uh, for for mental health support and and help? I, by that I mean healthcare, but also support from friends. And the support from friends comes with being able to talk about your struggle, which is overcoming stigma. Yes. Do you think that we that we sort of had this wave going forward, and now it's just sort of regressing back? And yeah. for people who have not generally uh, experienced issues, are are it's just yeah. kind of receding. Your your fear of COVID may have gone away, but all of the lingering side effects around the anxiety are still there. They still remain. There's nothing that you know has made that part of the world go away. Um, and unfortunately, I I really think that this is one of those areas we have. We've done a bad job. So we talked about the importance of mental health. 
during COVID. And then we started to hear things about wellness and resilience. And, and that does play a part. It does. But it's not always the answer for everyone. And it doesn't fix everything. And I, I get this sense that, and maybe part of it is just the general overall, we're over COVID, even though COVID's not over, we're over COVID. So we're over anything related to COVID. And that includes people who are, who've been left with this high anxiety. And so I don't necessarily see the supports. I was hoping that they would leverage that discussion during COVID to keep it up, not just post COVID, but maybe increase it, see the importance even more. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think that that is what's happening. At least that's not been the, my experience in my circle of friends or the people that I know. Um, and in fact, I think what's happened in many ways is we've just made it something else that we're, we're, we're just like, go see your family doc. Well, your family doc can't necessarily help you. And they're referring you, but you can't get into where you need to be referred to for months. Or I guess uh, I understand in, in the case of the centralized psychiatric access, it can be up to a year. So what are we doing for people in the meantime? And, and like I said, I feel like this is one of those things that we've just left by the wayside. We're done with COVID, don't want to think about it. So we don't want to think about all of these people who've now got this new sense of anxiety or worry or heightened worry. Um, so we can't give them the services they need because we're not thinking about the services they need anymore. Yes. Yeah, so people are, are if, if I'm, if I'm getting this correct, what you're saying, people are still experiencing yes. some of that heightened mental health uh, struggle, anxiety, and so on, where they were able to be a bit more open about it because so many people were talking about it. Now yes. it's not like it's gone away these anxieties and so on. What's gone away is our willingness and our security and talking about it. So now stigma has dropped its ugly curtain again, and people are just not able to, hey, you know what? You should be better. It's yes. over. We're all back to work. It's all good. And, and, I, uh, and, and everybody have, wants yeah. to go along and do that, which is where we yeah. were before. Yes. And it's ironic because I, I had a conversation. So I should say my my closest circle, God bless them, were there for me before and have been there for me since. But I had a conversation uh, with an acquaintance and I was explaining, you know, I'm still feeling a lot of anxiety about this. And they just, yeah, but COVID's over. Like, why are you still anxious? And, I'm, and that's when you're like, okay, so I'm not going to tell you that I was super anxious coming into this. But I said to myself, but what if you were someone who that was the first time you experienced anxiety and now you have somebody saying, telling you, you should be over it. The um, most recent statistic that I saw, which came out from Stats Canada, and I believe it was for 2021, was that one in three Canadians uh, live with some sort of mental health issue. Yes. Um, and that's up for, and I think that's realistic because up yeah. until then, it seems like the last 20 years, it was one in five, one in five, one in five which based on my personal experience, my group of friends, my family was was not a valid number. I think one in three yes. is is much more um, bang on probably where we are. So that's 30 some odd, 33% of the population. That 33% though, again, if we go back to who's talking about it, that 33% doesn't mean that we have 33% more people talking or being open about yep. it and, and not being afraid of stigma, which then goes back to that worry. If the public is not on the governments and the funders for, for mental health 
and mental health suppliers constantly. So that 33% as opposed to the 20% pushing for it. Do we see that just recede again? I think it's like anything in government. If it's not front of mind, it can be difficult to get the funding. Uh, and I think, you know, I always used to joke with the one in the one in five and the other four are impacted by it. And it's the same with the one in three. Yes. One in three yes. are affected and the other two people know someone, are supporting someone, have experience with someone. Family is is a huge component of that. And, and uh, I had over about 15 years, I had um, spoken to a group called Family Support Network in Niagara. And those were people who came parents mostly, uh, parents and spouses who came because they didn't know how to reach or how to help that family member. And and what was happening was, was really um, the person um, who was struggling, feeling stigmatized and not wanting to do anything about it. So for example, and this was an extreme case, but it was heartbreaking, was a woman whose husband had been severely depressed for years. I actually think it might have been seven years. And he she had basically not left the house because he wouldn't leave the house even for family events because he didn't want people to know. So you're dealing with two things there with stigma. Um, male uh, stigma, which is we all know is it's yeah. harder for a man, but also the effect on the spouse, the, on the wife who was at Family Support Network. That kind of stigma when you when you... When you see what stigma can do to yes. a person. Now, I discovered a thing about myself and uh, and stigma is that while I am open about my struggles and about my bipolar disorder, I stigmatize myself internally. And I had not re- realized that I was doing this. I, I have no, no problem talking to you about it or my neighbor, whoever. But it, what I mean by stigmatizing myself is that it was, I can't, I'm not good enough to do that job. I can't apply for that job because my memory is poor because of ADHD or for a very long time, it was, what if I get sick again? And yep. the fear of what if I get sick again, and then I can't do the job. And I, ha- you know, and all of these things that were internally, you know, me making myself feel terrible and insecure and unable to be as good as people out there who who weren't in my mind because of course so many people probably were struggling and again I go back to anxiety because it's one of the big ones but I, I I was my it was a revelation to me to realize that I could stigmatize myself and then I so I started to try and work on that so, okay, so that is a completely interesting conversation. And I, only my dearest friends and now everybody who's listening to this will know. I, but you just so, outed yourself at your new job, right? That's right. Well, I just outed myself at my new job. And it's actually about my new job. So I love my new job. This is the job that if you had asked me 10 years ago, I'm like, this is the job I want. I'm so excited. And it actually came available in July. And I didn't apply for that very reason. I'm not good enough. What if my anxiety takes over? You know, what if I suddenly start to have panic and anxiety attacks if I have to be in Toronto more? And so I ended up going in on a six-week vacation fill-in. And we were getting close to the end of it. And uh, and the manager, was, she's like, well, can I ask why you didn't apply for this job? You like it. You're good at it. You know, you really seem to enjoy it. And, uh, you know, 
you don't want to say out loud, well, because I'm pretty sure it wasn't going to be good, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I, I don't want to have these anxiety attacks. I said, well, you know, just kind of stuff was going on. And that's what we tell ourselves, right? Externally, it's, oh, stuff's going on. Now it's not the right time. And she says, I want you to apply for it. And I'm like, oh. And then there's like, I'm not going to do well in the interview. If I do well in the interview, I'm not going to do like, you know, and, and your mind is our mind is our own worst enemy, right? Because it becomes that snowball. And so I ended up doing it. I'm like, okay, so I'm just going to do this for the experience. When she offered me the job, I actually said the words out loud. Are you sure? Right. And she's like, <laughs> of course, I'm sure. Like you were perfect for this. And I'm like, but that, to your point, we are our own worst enemy. We hold ourselves back because we're afraid if we go forward, somebody is going to see that weakness. And, and that's the, I guess that's the other piece to stigma is I thought, you know, I had this all changed and I know it's not a weakness and I know it's not a weakness. And if you came to me or one of my friends came to me, I'm like, of course it's not a weakness, but my own internal dialogue is still a little bit of, well, why don't you have this under control already? You're a fully grown person. You know what this is. And, you know, you have all of the facts. And for me, that's the way my brain works. Like if you have the facts, you have the answer. I have all of the facts but there isn't an answer. It isn't a, a black and white. You know, this isn't a math equation. This is like a really bad essay that could go really good or really bad. And and I think that's the frustrating part. And and so if people is amazing, like, I'm not gonna lie, to hear you say that you hold yourself back or that you struggle, I'm like, do you have any idea how amazing you are? And then if people like you don't see your own amazingness, how many other people are there out there who aren't seeing their amazingness? that aren't putting their full self into the world because they're afraid of how the world is going to look at them when they try and do that. Because what happens if we do have an anxiety attack? Or what happens if you do have a moment where, you know, the mental illness becomes higher or at a higher level or, you know, impacts your functioning? You're like, in case that happens, I won't do this amazing things and I won't give my gifts to the world versus I'll give my gifts to the world and hey, you know, what happens? And I think that is that's the other nuanced piece to stigma is what do we do to ourselves because we're afraid of what others might think of us. So how many times have you said to someone or spoken to someone about your anxiety or said, you know what, hey, I have to I have to walk away from this for a second because my anxiety is ramping up. How many times has somebody said to you, whoa, 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 Jennifer, don't come near me again. I don't like people with anxiety. You're a pariah. Right. For me? Not at all. For me? Exactly. Never. Not at all. But I'm so afraid the next time will be the time that they do that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and you know, for me, part of it is it goes back to I really had so many high hopes. I mean, it's, it sounds awful to say I had high hopes during COVID, but I had high hopes during COVID this would move the conversation. And not that because more people were suffering from it, you know, we'd have better, you know, we'd have a greater sense of fraternity, but more people would understand the experience, especially with anxiety. I was like, you know, I, I'm sad that people are experiencing this, but maybe more people will understand it and we can move that forward. And, and to honestly see it dismissed and and basically move on like we're done and i and i do i absolutely get covid burnout and and all of those pieces but we've thrown out everything that we learned it seems in the meantime and and the result though is death the result is people not living their best life you know we're, we're more and more opioid deaths we're you know doctors doctors in er's are seeing more and more people come in that are return visitors to the er 
And, and there's, you know, a friend of mine's an ER doc. And I said, you know, what's your greatest frustration? He's like that they're in today and I want to help them. And I can, you know, I can give them a list of resources. And he said, but particularly with addiction, you have a window. And if somebody realizes they need help, it can sometimes with addiction be a very small window to I need help to I'm going to get help. And the lag in between is what is killing people. I want help, but I can't get the help I need right away. So I have to go back to using or I have to go back to drinking. And, and we know science knows people are using substances because something else is going on. Right. There's often a comorbidity with mental illness. And so. Their frustration as docs is he goes, I sometimes I feel like, you know, they're coming in, I'm patching them up and I can't do what I want to do, which is give them the help they want, give them the help they need. You know, I was I was talking to a friend of mine and a couple of years ago when, you know, you started to be able to get naloxone kits and drugstores. And I remember getting my first one. I'm like, I'll never have to use this. I'll, these will expire before I have to use them. Um, either I or somebody I've been with has had to help someone else three times since 2019 with a naloxone kit. This isn't because wow. people want to live this lifestyle. This isn't no. because people want to be addicts. There's something at the core and we're not making it easy for them to fix what's at the core. Those people have family and friends and loved ones who are also impacted by it, right? It's never the individual, it's a community. And that's what's missing. I think that maybe, maybe what we kind of leave this with is, a little bit of guidance for someone who's really unable to, you know, be open or feel like, and they're living in that quiet sense of desperation. Yes. Find one person and talk to that one person. Yes. That one person. And again, there's always that, see your own, see you in the other person's eyes. Cause you can literally see your reflection on the face and how that person reacts. If you yep. get a good reaction from that person, maybe add a second person. Don't feel like you need to go out there and go, yeah, here I am. And this is me to the whole world, to yep. your whole office, even to your whole family. Yep. That one person, your one safe harbor. And, and you'll know who your safe harbor is because that will be the person you tell all of your other secrets to. The person when all of the other stuff is going on in your life that you have that conversation with, that will be your safe harbor. And you may only have one safe harbor for a while until you feel comfortable. It was only one of my very best friends who knew for probably three or four, sorry, they all probably knew and I thought I was hiding it, but there was only one that I would talk to about it. And I will tell you the only reason I quote unquote outed myself was in my interview for the board for the Canadian Mental Health Association. They said, well, you know, do you have any lived experience? And I'm like, this is really important to me. This cause is important. I want to help this cause. And I'm like, yes. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, those are three strangers I just told, you know, and then you get on the board and, you know, friends and acquaintances, well, what made you want to do that? And you're like, you know, my friends, well, I had some lived experiences, acquaintances, it's important, but it took me a while. And, and, you know, talking about stigma, I, come from generations who struggled with mental health and addiction, but it mostly showed itself in the form of addiction. It's only now when my brother and I talk or my cousins that we realize most of that addiction was about mental health. And you think if they had only felt comfortable enough to talk to one person. Um, so find that person and that person will be there for you. I promise you, you will never, 
if you would not judge that other person, they will not judge you. You know that person in your heart, but you have to, you have to have that brave conversation the first time. 